Hi, and welcome to Slot Leader, a Cardano finance podcast where we try to bridge the gap between the world of finance and the world of blockchain technology. I'm your host, Umed Saidov, and in today's episode, we have a special guest from Europe. His name is Julian Ratcliffe, and he is a, uh, a, a seasoned financial professional who's been active in the VC sector, uh, financing fintech industry, and um, has been involved with the uh, blockchain industry for quite a while. So I would I invited him today over to Slot Leader to share his thoughts and uh, and share his uh, you know vantage point from the person who is looking uh, from the VC side uh, into this sector and uh, seeing different kinds of potential in the blockchain industry. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Uh, we've had a very long conversation, so I had to break down the interview into two parts. Uh, today, you will see the first part and the next part is going to be available next week. As always, I would like to remind our viewers and listeners that uh, Slot Leader is an educational podcast and as such, we do not provide investment, financial, tax, or legal advice. When it comes to blockchain news, this week was fairly quiet, um, except for the fact that uh, we have uh, seen the reports online that uh, the Biden's administration is apparently tapping Gary Gensler uh, as the chairman of SEC. This is a very significant post in uh, the political uh, arena that touches uh, blockchain industry. And I did some uh, background kind of research to, to see what kind of a uh, uh, views Gary Gensler has uh, about blockchain industry and uh, qu I was quite surprised by the depth of his knowledge to be honest. Uh, according to the interviews that I've seen uh, online with him, he has uh, a very good depth uh, and a very good grasp of blockchain technology and uh, you know it, it's always a welcome sort of uh, step when we have uh, regulators that have that kind of a, uh, um, a tight and, uh, and, and in-depth knowledge of the industry that they're supposed to regulate. So we will see what's going to happen in 2021, but I think uh, we will have at least uh, a lot of good clarity and good laws uh, and, and rules and regulations passed. Um, if you would like to know his views, uh, I will post a, uh, a link uh, to the comment in the comment sections to the, to the video where you could take a look at his interview with, um, with an MIT uh, student, I believe, um, and where he talks about uh, blockchain in detail. And, and I think he's, uh, you know, he's a very sensible person and this, he comes across as a sensible uh, person that would like to see a development of, uh, of, of blockchain industry. He's not anti-blockchain, so that's great news. In the Cardano community, last week we saw the results of the first decentralized voting for the treasury, the Cardano treasury. A total of 12 projects got funded uh, with this, the round two funding in the Cardano community. And I would like to um, congratulate everybody who's uh, uh, received funding and uh, is going to build on Cardano. Um, I would like to thank also personally everybody who's voted and um, and supported uh, my project, um, our project, uh, a pool tool upgrade proposal. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of, of pool tool, and uh, and I would like to uh, tell you that uh, we are we got to work immediately, and uh, we are hoping to build a an indispensable tool for both stakeholder operators and stakeholders alike. Hello, and welcome back to Slot Leader. 
Our today's guest is Julian Ratcliffe. He is an experienced financier, an investor, founder, and a mentor to European technology companies. He has more than 20 years of experience in investment banking, private equity, venture capital investing. And um, within these roles, as an independent consultant, he has been involved in transactions totaling more than 20 billion euros um, in aggregate. And uh, he has finance deals that range from half a million euro to uh, over uh, 10 billion um, in funding. Now, he has a consultancy firm called Vertus Partners that which he founded in 2010, and he works with high growth um, technology companies on business strategy and raising finance. I would like to welcome Julian to this uh, podcast. Uh, Good to have you here. Hi, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Julian, um, I mean, I remember we we talked about blockchain back in the day um, uh, about a year or two ago uh, when uh, this whole hype cycle started and I started getting into the the blockchain space. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, experience in blockchain? Sure. Well, I suppose it goes back to 2013. I had a, a social media startup and one of my devs got into Bitcoin and started doing some mining of Bitcoin and Litecoin. And like a lot of people, I didn't pay it too much attention at the time, uh, unfortunately. Um, but then in 2015, I was mentoring uh, some projects which were starting to use blockchain. So one was a commercial real estate um, a, a project to, to manage rent payments and track them and, and create some credit scorings. Um, and at that point, I, I got into reading a lot of the papers on Bitcoin uh, and how the Bitcoin blockchain might be used uh, in, other, in other approaches. So things like colored coins and um, a lot of things which I guess didn't, haven't really come to pass. So I think, you know, since then there's been some question for me in terms of what's the value of some of Bitcoin and some other uh, approaches. Well, and, and to sort of go back, so after 2015, 2016, I set up with um, some colleagues, uh, a fourth industrial revolution hub in London, um, basically to bring in tech companies to do accelerators, to, to connect early stage companies doing you know, blockchain, AI, IoT and robotics and connect to connect them to corporates. So the team we helped set up um, an accelerator in, in Zurich in Switzerland, a, a Swiss, um, the Kickstart accelerator focused on fintech. And uh, from there I got to meet and work with a lot of folks in, in the startup community there, you know, Zurich and, and Zug, uh, the Crypto Valley as I'm sure you're aware of. And that led us to working with the likes of, of Swisscom uh, on some sort of custody solutions and crypto custody solutions for banks, uh, working with the likes of UBS on you know, creating some proof of concept uh, pay for payments for self-driving cars on the blockchain, and then working you know, within our hub, some other companies uh, creating their own blockchain protocols to try and try to address a lot of the, the, the challenges and issues that we've seen with, with some of the other, um, the other you know, protocols coming through. So addressing things you know, like scalability, interoperability and, and this kind of thing. So I'm still involved with another um, another one of our companies, Keybox, which is focused on, um, initially it was focused on crypto keys and protecting them, but it's moved more to be a cybersecurity business focused on protecting data by using a distributed ledger. Uh, I guess, yeah, that, I mean, Keybox has got a history then that came through the, through the whole ICO phase. We, we thought about raising some money then 
Um, but, you know, obviously the, the crypto phase, the, the ICO phase, there are a lot of projects which didn't uh, work out for a number of reasons. Not least, a lot of them were on, you know, founded on very shaky kind of uh, foundations. But um, so, yeah, I continue to kind of be engaged with a number of, number of projects, which I suppose are looking at uh, how things go forwards, um, you know, using blockchain, using some of the properties of blockchain, um, using sort of the networks of trust for you know, both finance, for, for shared data, um, for um, things like supply chain and supply chain finance. So I guess my, my experience has been more on the, the operational deployment uh, of Bitcoin, or of blockchain rather, rather than focused on the sort of the crypto side of things. You got me there for for a second when you said Bitcoin. Yeah. <clears throat> um, but um, yes, that's, that's that's great that we have um, you here in the program uh, because I I think the reason um, why I sh you know value your views is that you have a unique view of uh, the investors and the traditional side of, of finance uh, looking into the blockchain um, as a potential for growth and investments. And um, in your experience so far, where do you see um, that pot of money that's coming from the traditional world um, of venture capital, uh, you name it, um, where are they seeing the potential in blockchain so far? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, with all these things, you, you kind of have to separate out the different uh, use cases and the different applications. Um, I think if you if you you know if you just look at the crypto side, there's a lot of people seeing opportunities to kind of make a fast buck. Um, I, you know, I think the 2017 boom in in blockchain, sorry, in, in Bitcoin and, and other cryptos was you know nothing gets people's attention like a get rich quick scheme. And um, so I think that that was behind the sort of the bubble back then. But at the same time, I think that allowed or opened the eyes of a lot of venture funds, you know, seeing these ICOs which were happening and they were kind of getting disintermediated and thought, well, hang on a minute, we, we our job is to deploy capital into high growth opportunities and we're kind of getting people raising money through ICOs where, where we don't really have a look in. So a lot of them went back and changed their, their terms of, of investment to be able to put money into uh, some of these token projects. So I think on, on that side, you know, there's been a, a change in mindset and, and, you know, VCs are good at adjusting their model quickly. Um, so they, they, some people have come in on the token side, I think on the blockchain side, um, and I think this goes to a, a lot of other blockchain projects, which is that, you know, people can see the value added through using blockchain, right, in that, uh, you have a distributed database, um, you can engage a lot more people. It has its properties of, of a network um, and, and values, you know, value attached to connecting your whole network into your, into your you know, system, whatever that may be. The, the, the flip side of that is, the flip side is, is that then uh, you need that network to be engaged for it to, to work. So where we've seen people trying to do supply chain uh, engagements with, with blockchain, you need the whole supply chain to be brought into it and, and kind of be adding their data along the way, which is not always inevitable, um, particularly as supply chains are, are, are a lot 
more complex and messy than, than people kind of give credit to. So yeah. I, I think, you know, there's still a lot of optimism and there are a lot of blockchain projects or distributed ledger projects which are being funded and financed. Um, I think people have to take, you know, investors have to take a long-term view on, on how those are going to become established and how they're going to build up that, that, those networks. Um, I think investors will equally have to bear in mind what, or have a good knowledge of what the underlying protocols are, right? Because I think some of them are not that interoperable. Um, some of them are quite hived off from, from others. But then, you, you know, you're seeing the likes of Cordo with a lot of banks engaged in that, uh, you know, the R3 uh, project, which is making it a lot easier for, for all of them to, to kind of run test projects off of it. So, yes. I think, yeah. You know, there's still a lot, uh, a lot going on, and a lot which is going to, you know, over the next few years, get a bit more public attention. So, obviously, as I was saying, we've been through the big blockchain hype cycle, um, and, and sometimes these things just take a little bit longer to, to to really, you know, get the traction and do the hard yards before they start really coming out into public. Yeah. So, so one thing I noticed um, this time around uh, is that. In 2017, as you noticed um, back then, probably there were, there were a lot of projects with questionable value proposition. It was just, yeah. I remember it was just one company just slap a, um, an ERC-20 token and then st start fundraising without calling it fundraising and, uh, you know, uh, try to remotely attach some sort of utility to that token and say, okay, well, if you have this token, it's going to give you X, Y, and Z. Um, I think this time around, we are very removed from that hype cycle, which was very retail driven. We are seeing, at least in the United States, uh, very sizable companies uh, like MicroStrategy has um, allocated um, realistically $1.2 billion in, in Bitcoin. And there are strategies that, you know, the cash is going to be uh, a little bit uh, too toxic. No, I wouldn't say too toxic, but, you know, it with negative interest rates, you have to protect your, your cash positions. And if you are a technology company that has a lot of cash, uh, you know, Bitcoin might be your, uh, your way out now. Yeah. And, and, you know, taking into consideration what's happening in the financial markets with uh, all the financial uh, assets being overhyped and in, in, in the bubble territory, you know, that might be a, a nice move. Um, so my question is, is, you know, if we go back to, uh, the, uh, the rationale right now, uh, we, we are seeing um, more institutional investors getting into this space. Um, I think I, I've been reading uh, the note by uh, the uh, MetLife, which is an insurance company in the United States who just re recently released a, a, a sort of a primer that I, I hope that re reflects their views of the space. And they are looking into, into this space as a way of, of diversifying their portfolios. Now, Today, in this environment, we are so much far ahead in terms of uh, uh, value proposition for the blockchain and uh, the types of instruments that are being built and released. And I'm talking specifically about the third generation blockchains. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2017, the only game in town was Ethereum. It was clunky. It worked. I mean, it, it, it was a good proof of concept for, their, uh, for, for the idea. Uh, but it, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, we've come a long way from then. We have Algorand, we have uh, Avalanche, and last but not least, we have 
Cardano that are um, leaps and bounds and head and shoulders above uh, those uh, early days of uh, 2017 when uh, we only had Ethereum. And Ethereum itself is transforming into proof of stake, which is uh, what the third generation is. Um, they will take a little bit of time to transform because they have a big a luggage of, of things to, to sort out. Um, but we are talking about enterprise-grade software being developed by scientists that are be, that's being available right now in a public domain and public blockchain. Now, mm. knowing that and, uh, in, and, and understanding these implications in the background, do you think we will see a, uh, a renewed interest from the institutions uh, to come and invest uh, in protocols themselves? and uh, in, in the types of applications that they will host? Yeah, I don't know, that's a, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. So I think you know, what we've seen over the last uh, few years is, is that institutions have got into blockchain and DLT, they have done experiments with them, uh, but then a good number of them have, have not really got much further than, than experiments and they, they haven't really got to a point where they've deployed anything. So for example, um, you know, I know RBS uh, quite well. They've done a lot of, uh, you know, Royal Bank of Scotland, done quite a lot of, you know, employed a decent sized blockchain team who experimented with you know, all, all the different protocols really, uh, looked at a lot of different use cases, worked across from a lot of you know, projects who were promising to, to do things differently. Um, and I guess my sense is that none of those have really trans transitioned from uh, experiments into something which can be really uh, you know, applied in anger. So I think we'll probably continue to see people, banks and corporates experimenting, you know, to your point about institutional money coming in, you know, the likes of Square, I think I read, have put a, a lot of their treasury money into uh, Bitcoin. And, and I think that, you know, again, I think we need to sort of separate the, 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 the crypto and the, and the crypto value side of it from the blockchain application side of things, right? So on, on the Bitcoin and the crypto valuation side of it, I think what's very, very different this time to, to the last uh, hype cycle, I guess 2017 hitting those peaks then, was that it was all retail driven. And in the crypto winter that followed, uh, everyone in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the space was saying, well, look, we need institutional money to come in and take this seriously. And frankly, that, that's, that's what's happened in 2020 with um, coronavirus changing the way that people are doing business, um, changing, obviously then sort of precipitating a recession, precipitating a lot of um, money printing and um, federal money coming out, people are fearing inflation. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot more institutional money committing to Bitcoin. And I think if you follow the prices of it in the, in the first part of this year, uh, it's kind of gone up and it went, where it's dropped, that then money's come in to sort of support it at, at you know, the sort of 30 to 40,000 level where it is today. And, and I think, you know, it will continue to have upward surges. And then when it falls back, you'll see people buying in the dips. But there's a lot, there's a lot deeper pool of money to come in and support, um, you know, that those prices going forwards. And so you're seeing these estimations coming out for or predictions for price at the end of the year going from anywhere from like sixty thousand sixty five thousand uh, dollars you know and then JP Morgan one hundred and forty thousand dollars and 
Citigroup, someone, Citibank, over $300,000. So I think that there's a lot of um, optimism in terms of the, the pricing of Bitcoin and you know, every, every other crypto is, is relatively correlated um, to, 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 to Bitcoin. On the blockchain side of things, you know, people using blockchain, I think some of these, some of the protocols are maturing. And so um, you're also seeing, I suppose, more projects which are, which are getting closer to, to being deployed. So when I was talking about banking and the incumbents like you know, RBS and Barclays and some others, UBS, sort of been experimenting with blockchain and not being able to really see how they can use it. The others have, have you know, jumped into the, the um, R3 and Corda projects and, and sort of may find ways to, to use that. But then there are other independents collect, putting together um, whole banking platforms based on, on blockchain. So Thought Machine is a good example in the UK. Uh, I think, I can't remember who they've partnered with. They've partnered with a kind of relatively early stage bank, but I can see that being um, you know, very valuable. And I think yes. there's going to continue to be, you know, more blockchain projects like that, which which starts relatively small and humble, but then really start to show their value down the line when they've got cheaper costs and, and they can really um, leverage the benefits that the blockchain you know, gives them. Yes, I mean, I, I, I have seen uh, the, the difference in attitude in the United States, at least with the income and administration uh, being, I, I, I would, I believe, more open to the open blockchain. Um, a particular, um, particularly, uh, I, would, I would point out the recent OCC's letter, which is the, the, the banking regulator in the United States, um, mm -hmm. clarifying um, in no unambiguous terms um, that um, the, the banks can use open blockchain to transfer value. Now, if I were a bank and I, I'm using, let's say, ACH and ACH is costing me X number of dollars, um, I believe I, 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 I owe it to myself and my shareholders at least to take a look at blockchain as, uh, as, as an infrastructure for transferring money. For one thing, the way I see it, uh, transferring money over um, a blockchain, open blockchain, takes care of, of uh, uh, counterparty risks, <clears throat> right? So um, in ev every year in the United States, at least, uh, we have uh, $56 trillion being transferred between the banks in the United States over a what we call a, an ACH network. Now, that network uh, allows you to transfer money uh, if you're a consumer uh, through the bank for free if you're willing to wait for three days. But if you are uh, in a hurry and you want to transfer money immediately or within the same day, um, the same network is used in order to transfer your wires. And that uh, each transfer can cost up to $45 per transfer. And my sense is that, I, and again, I don't know uh, the details because I haven't looked at it in, in quite closely, but as, as an entity to remain profitable, ACH will have to probably, is, is financing um, the, uh, the, the cost of operations through, through uh, you know, uh, the, the wire transfers. So the wire transfers are probably subsidizing all the other transactions that are taking place. Now, Every time a bank basically transfers money, it, it has to go through a clearinghouse, right? The ACH is a clearinghouse that makes sure that everybody who is uh, transferring money has that money and then, you know, mess, passes the messages. And that role could be completely taken care of and, and disintermediated by an open blockchain. 
because you, you are actually, let's say that, you know, I'm transferring uh, the digital version of the United States dollar, which is, you know, USDC, which is regulated. It's, uh, it's open blockchain. It's uh, issued on Ethereum and you can transfer it from one wallet to another. And you are transferring uh, effectively United States dollar. So you don't have to worry about uh, the other bank uh, being able to, to uh, actually honor its uh, you know, uh, commitment, things like that, or have any uncertainty about the solvency of the bank when they say, okay, well, I'm transferring you this much money or you, you owe me this much. Uh, so, on the banking side of things and on the uh, uh, the ledger side of things, things will become very easy um, because you you only have two wallets to talk to each other. And as long as you have the address of the other bank, you can transfer it. And it takes place almost inst instantaneously on the third generation blockchains like uh, Cardano. I mean, uh, and if you take uh, international transfers, you are actually, your, your gains are much higher because if I'm, I'm sure you know, Jules, uh, that uh, when uh, you transfer money from country A to country B, and if the country B does not have, the banking country B does not have uh, the, uh, the banking relationship with country A, you, you might have to do a, a lot of hops. Uh, and all those hops within the banking industry will cost you money, which is why, uh, you know, uh, the, the money transfer services uh, charge, you, uh, charge you up to 20% uh, of your fees to actually, uh, to, to your, your amount to, to send your money. So when the banks uh, are on an open blockchain, and that's something that I, I believe is being realized by the uh, regulators here in the United States, then all these costs that uh, are associated with infrastructure, the current traditional infrastructure, basically go to zero because all you have to do is just open a, a, an account, uh, which is free, and then you tell the other bank to use the same sort of uh, yeah. a payment network and you just transfer the money. And uh, it, whether you transfer $2 billion or $0.02, cents, it costs the same amount of money to do it. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, in that uh, the picture that you painted, it sort of suggests there's no place for banks and, and they are completely uh, pointless. But I think you have to bear in mind that, um, you know, wallet to wallet transfer re relies on quite a lot of responsibility for who, the individual or whoever's holding the wallets. And, you know, banks do have a, a role to play in you know, guaranteeing uh, that, that, that people don't lose their money by being stupid, which, you know, uh, a lot of people need that help because um, they're not technical. And, no, and absolutely. I mean, in, in this picture, uh, Jules, just wanted to clarify, uh, in this picture, I don't see the banks going away because, you know, you can transfer the money yourself. Yeah. And But I, I do see them leveraging the open blockchain in order to cut their own costs, for that matter. <coughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the likes of you know Mastercard and all these all these other folks have got uh, divisions looking at blockchain and seeing how they can you know port what they're doing onto those rails. And I'm sure that you know if they, they can, I'm sure they can see the the cost saving opportunities there. And and frankly, you know, it's for all the incumbent financial institutions to to pull their finger out and uh, get on top of these. You know, new technologies and, and, and deploy them. I think those those the people who get there first um, will protect themselves from being disrupted. I, I think honestly, I, I think um, to your point, um, PayPal has gotten into this um, uh, 
sphere um, into this space in order to uh, protect itself from being uh, uh, redundant down the road. I, I honestly think that all the money transfer businesses are in jeopardy because of the blockchain. And PayPal has a, uh, a, a big sort of client base that it could basically offer the same services uh, to, 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 the, uh, to their clients, but underlying, change the underlying infrastructure to blockchain. And it will cost, uh, it, would, it would cut a lot of server costs. You don't have to maintain all these infrastructure that they probably pay a lot of dollars to actually maintain all of that. You know, imagine if, if, uh, if, if you were uh, to send money from point A to point B and uh, you are an approved, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why PayPal is used is that, you know, the money is kind of clean. You know, it's, it's changing hands between the, the people who are approved or uh, known to the system and nothing funny is taking place there, hopefully, because they have some, uh, you know, KYC and AML, um, you know, uh, regulation in there in the entry and exit points. So, um, so I can see them basically using the infrastructure of the open blockchain, just the way that we use internet nowadays in order to conduct our business, uh, but without having to pay enormous amount of money uh, for our own sort of private internets and, and make them talk to each other. So I, I think that's where we're going with open blockchain. I think the, the, the beginning was a little bit bumpy because both the regulators and the, and the incumbents had to come into to terms with, with changing, mm. uh, um, you know, uh, landscape. But, uh, but it, it, eventually, I think they realized that this is inevitable because you can't compete with open blockchain, you know, being a money transfer business uh, with, with your old traditional cost structures and relying on the old rails because they are inefficient. They are, have been made completely redundant. Uh, and, and I'm saying that as somebody who's tech savvy at this point to, to understand all these de technical details. But uh, it will come um, through, you know, these, these savings will come through, through established services like PayPal already, right? And, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the companies that do not have that luxury uh, will, will have to kind of, uh, you know, uh, go away or whatnot. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to your point, it, it is sort of third generation, uh, third generation blockchains, which, which make this a lot more feasible, I think, you know, the likes of Ethereum have done have been fantastic in, in moving things forward, but they've always had this issue around, you know, you can't. It's not commercial to build your infrastructure on uh, a platform where you don't know what your cost is going to be next year. It could be ten times what it is this year. So I think it's you know with the, the changes in consensus protocols are going to you know have have big consequences for the usability and applicability of blockchains. Um, so I think that's that's definitely uh, something which has facilitated the, the 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 uptake and use of it. Yeah. Now I want to uh, change the gears a little bit. I know that you've been talking to uh, to the authorities in 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 UK. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? You've been a public speaker on the blockchain and contributed to the UK government's House of Lords report on the distributed ledger technologies for the public good. Can you tell us? Uh, what has been, you know, uh, what, what kind of things you've learned and what kind of obstacles people generally in that realm have with this technology? Yeah, well, I think it's the same um, when you talk to anyone who's not, hasn't got up the curve on, on, on blockchain or 
or Bitcoin or crypto or distributed ledger technology. For them, it's all the same thing. And, you know, they've read in the newspaper that Bitcoin is bad because some, uh, some you know, bad people use it to send money or whatever. And so uh, the, the, in the first instance, you, you've got to make sure you're speaking to people who understand that a distributed ledger is um, a sort of base technology on which a blockchain sits. And one application of that may be a, a payment facility like like Bitcoin. But in terms of talking to, um, you know, the House of Lords paper, that was around you know, looking at what we can do with distributed ledger and how it can be applied. Um, and look, there's a lot of optimism and uh, acceptance of, of new technologies and, and looking at different ways of trying to do things. I think when you speak with governments, though, you've, you've got to be aware that their timeline is very different, right? So they set up a series of talks, uh, discussions, um, uh, what they call all, par all party parliamentary groups, where they get together uh, every couple of every two or three months to, to discuss um, the, the implications or opportunities, right? And so they set up a, a, an AVPG around blockchain and the timeline for talking, talking it over and, and trying to come to a view was over the course of two years. So, you know, I think being a, a technologist, you, you'll appreciate that, that the timelines in our minds are a lot shorter. We kind of look to uh, see how something can be used and, and try and get it you know, proof of concept or some sort of MVP done in, in six months and then try and get something operational within 12 to 18 months. But in government, it's a lot more talking and thinking. They move a lot more slowly. They tend to, you know, if you understand where they're coming from, which is about um, forming regulations and uh, taking a much longer term view, that, that that's, they have to be a bit slower and more pragmatic, I suppose, in, in, um, in the way they absorb this information and think it through and think about all the logical consequences of uh, developing regulations, for example. So by, by definition, it's going to take a lot longer um, and, and a lot slower. But as I say, the, the, the appetite to engage uh, and, and, and see the interest and see the opportunity here is there. But it, it'll take longer than the commercial applications of blockchain, for sure. I mean, the point you're making before about banks and, and, and the financial opportunities, you know, in my mind, that that's, that's the kind of logical sequence of uptake with, with things like blockchain. You know, it's going to go where it, it makes most money first, and that's going to be in, in the finance field. And once we get some solid uh, applications set up in, in the finance space, then I think you're going to see more um, use cases leveraging that experience in other parts of industry, whether it's in supply chains, uh, whether it's in um, a number of other number number of other applications, but sort of building on that finance layer. I see. Um, now, have, just just a follow up question on that though. Um, have you seen any evolution of uh, thought process between 2017 and now in the regulatory side of things in the UK? And um, are, are you thinking that they understand the space better now or are they in the, more or less the same level? Do they understand? And be, because it's very crucial, um, at least on my side in the US, I, I see a very good uh, sort of uh, robustness 
of, uh, of, of regulatory uh, bodies and, and uh, people who are in charge of reg regulation here in the yeah. United States are demonstrating a very good grasp of, of the yeah. underlying technology. And it it's, it's has changed considerably uh, since two years ago. And I, I just want to wonder, you know, like get a temperature check and see if, uh, if, if you, you're noticing the same kind of uh, uh, change. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, it's question mark whether there's been a dramatic shift. I think you've got to appreciate that the, the, the UK, you know, FCA approach is, is more uh, reactive than proactive. So, you know, they're not going to come out. And, and that's in contrast to somewhere like Switzerland, where Finmar has been proactive you know they've come forward and just after the whole ICO boom in 2017 and, and they came came through and said well look there's three types of tokens payment tokens utility tokens asset tokens and so they set out a framework for for, for really defining these things understanding them um, they've set out approaches where if you have a project in Switzerland you can get a no action letter so they will look through your project proposal and then understand where it's categorized and then understand you know what what regulation will or will not apply so you know, that, that's sort of very positive uh, and engaged uh, regulator the fca is more uh, responsive so you know if you do something wrong then they'll turn around and tell you something wrong at the same time they have been engaging they do have a sandbox and they have been engaging with people uh, and, and blockchain projects so to sort of really understand what they're doing how they're trying to go about it uh, and ultimately to make sure that that end users are, are kept safe. I mean, that, that ultimately is the purpose of the regulator is to stop people getting ripped off by you know, unscrupulous actors. So no, that's, I, that's absolutely understandable, um, Jules. But they, so I think, you know, I don't think, I don't feel there's been a big uh, change or, or shift, but um, you know, they're, they're open to, to discuss projects and, and, you know, I don't think they're stopping anyone from doing things at the moment. Thank you for watching and listening to our podcast today. If you like the type of content that we're putting together, please don't forget to subscribe so you could catch the next episode, which is going to be definitely more interesting as the time goes. Um, I'm your host, Umad Saidoff, and you've been listening and watching uh, Slot Leader. I will see you next time.